Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Now, Proverbs chapter 13, right in verse 1, uh, our goal is to get pretty far through this entire chapter today. But right in verse 1, Solomon begins by making both an observation, really he makes an observation, but through that observation he makes an exhortation. He said, this is the truth I've observed. And without saying it, he is saying, so walk in that. It it makes sense that you would walk in that particular truth. Here's the truth. He said, a wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Now, again, remember in this particular book, he's been speaking to his son, among others. And if he had daughters, he would address them certainly as well. But he's been speaking to his child and passing words of wisdom. And we've sort of just been observing, if you will, kind of gleaning. Well, what can I learn? I know he's not my dad, but he could probably share some things with me. And here he tells us that a wise son hears his father's instruction. And no doubt he would say a wise daughter hears his father's instruction or a wise son hears his mother's instruction or a wise daughter hears his mother's instruction. The idea is generally not even really just particularly to a child listening to their parent, but a person listening to the instruction of another person. So again, a wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. What Solomon has been pointing out is that the one that is willing to receive instruction is the one that is wise. The one that is willing to receive instruction is the one that is wise. While, whereas the one that refuses to do that, that that person is really a fool. Now, the writer of the book of Hebrews, many of us are familiar, he said this, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Amen? Come on, obviously truth. Uh, True, all discipline seems painful for the moment rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Nobody likes to be disciplined. I don't know anyone that likes to be disciplined. Oh, that was great. I remember when I was an athlete or even when I was a coach. As a coach, I used to love to discipline the students, but as an athlete, I didn't like it. Today, I remember I had a coach. He said, no soccer balls today, but coach. We're a soccer team. Don't we need soccer balls? No, we're just going to run today. Matter of fact, don't even bring your spikes. Just bring your uh, running shoes. Oh, okay. You know, I think think I'm a little sick today, coach, because nobody wants to go to that. Nobody wants to be disciplined in the moment. Nobody enjoys the discipline process. But the one who is wise will submit to that process knowing that it is for their good. Because honestly, how can a person correct a fault if that fault is never pointed out to them. And so it's the one that realizes or discovers that, you know what, there's a value in correction. There's a value in discipline. And those that have gone before us, whether it's spiritually or just mom and dad or grandmom and grandpop that have gone before us, those that have gone before us likely have learned many of their lessons the hard way. And you can either learn it the hard way or you can learn from the one who has already learned it the hard way. And the wise person chooses to learn in that particular way. I'm going to learn by being taught. The wise man or woman learns those lessons from those that have learned those lessons. And they they do so with a lot less pain. So do yourself a favor. Learn from the wisdom of those that have gone before you. If you don't have somebody in your life that you you sort of honor, you respect, you look at their life and you say, there's a person that kind of knows where they're going, has wisdom bound up in their hearts, get up next to that person 
and learn from that particular person. And you'll find that you keep yourself from a lot less pain or you, you have a lot less pain. Amen? All right, verse 2. It says, from the fruit of his mouth, a man eats what is good, but the desire of the treacherous is for violence. Now, we, we hear that eats what is good, fruit of his mouth. Don't focus so much on the word eats there, because that sort of gives the impression that we're talking about actual eating and food. Think of that, words eat, that word eats rather as receiving or possessing. And with that in mind, Solomon's point here is that the person whose speech is edifying and encouraging to others will himself be edified and encouraged even by his very own words. The person whose speech is edifying and encouraging to other people will himself also be edified and encouraged. That the individual will be rewarded when he sees the beneficial results of his spoken word. So as I speak a word of edification to another person, I encourage another person. I speak words that build up another person. I'm encouraged by those very words. And I'm encouraged by the good work that I see those words doing in a person's heart. So if you speak encouragement, you will be encouraged. If you bless others with your words, you will be blessed. And conversely, as we see here, if you speak critically or you speak cynically to or about other people, you will find that coming back upon yourself. You'll find that you begin to develop a cold and cynical and a hard heart. And so we've seen it a number of times already in our study of Proverbs, particularly in the last two or three chapters. But once again, we learn the importance of guarding the words that come out of our mouths. Because in the tongue, we have the power either to speak life or death. In the tongue, we have the power to either speak harm or healing. And so we are reminded once again of the importance of that. Now notice also in verse 3, he specifically says, whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. And he who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. President Calvin Coolidge, famously known as a man of little words, they actually referred to him, his nickname was Silent Cal. I don't know if you know, did anyone know we have a president named Calvin Coolidge? All right, in the 19th, Jim, you remember electing him president uh, in the 1920s. I'm just kidding. My mouth, I just violated the word, my mouth, I'm kidding. I meant from your studies. Yes, that's what I meant. So anyway, there was this fellow, they called him Silent Cow because he was famously a man of, of little words. He was also famously a man of little work. He worked four hours a day as president of the United States. And if he said, if I need to work more than that, I'm doing something wrong as your president. I like that. It sounds pretty good. Anyway, Silent Cow, he once asked, well, why do you say so little? You're the president. People want to hear what you have to say. Why do you speak so little? And his very short response was simply this. I never have regretted anything that I didn't say. I never have regretted anything I didn't say. Now, from time to time, people do regret not saying something. There are times where people wish. I wish I would have said sorry for that particular offense that happened. I wish I would have told that person how I truly felt. I wish I would have uh, said I love you to that person that has now passed on. So there are times where people regret not having said something. But more often than not, we regret something we have said as opposed to something we hadn't said. There's an old Chinese proverb, and I think it addresses this idea with a helpful picture. The proverb says, once a word leaves your mouth, you cannot chase it back even with the swiftest of horses. Once a word leaves your mouth, leaves your mouth. And that, I think, is why Solomon says that whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. Because sometimes whoever guards his mouth literally preserves his life. 
As I'm sure many of you have seen news incidences or cases, you've read articles in the paper or heard a story on the news of some bar fight that ends up with somebody getting killed or some road rage incident where somebody ends up getting shot because they didn't guard their mouth and they said something and someone didn't like it and they said something back and the next thing you know, someone's dead over the fact that you took the peanuts or something off of the bar or whatever it may be. But if you guard your mouth, the wise person takes care, great care, with the words that they allow to come out of their mouths. In the, since the 1980s, law enforcement officials have been required to read a person in their custody their Miranda rights. You probably know the Miranda rights. Some of you probably know it very well, uh, the Miranda rights, hopefully not too well. But the Miranda rights, whatever you say, can and will be used against you. And remember, you have the right to remain silent, the individuals are told. Well, whether you're suspected of a crime or not, you have the right to remain silent. And may I encourage you, you are encouraged by Scripture to remain silent. Now, we know Solomon, he tells us in another place, there are times to speak up. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, that well-known passage, it says there's a time to tear and a time to sow. There's a time to keep silence and there's a time to speak. So there's a time to speak up and there's a time to keep quiet and so on. Solomon's exhortation, I would suggest to us, is this. Think before you speak. Think before you speak. And I came across what I thought was helpful, this little expression. Before speaking, it would do us well to think about what we're what we are about to say. So think, is it T, is it truthful? Is it H, is it helpful? Is it I and N, is it inspiring or needful? And then finally, is it kind? And if we just took a few minutes before actually letting those words come out of our mouth to think, is it truthful, helpful, inspiring, needful, and kind? I think we would save ourselves a lot of difficulty and in some cases actually death as we see examples of uh, in our society. James in the New Testament He says, the perfect man is the one who has learned to control his tongue. He says, we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a complete man, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. That tongue is so hard. We can get so many other things under control, but that tongue. And if you can't control what comes out of your mouth, then do your best to make sure that nothing comes out of your mouth. If you can't control the words that do come out and the tone which they come out, well then tape your mouth shut or whatever and you would save yourself a lot of trouble. And if this is an area for you, like this, you know what, that's me. I've I've, I've dealt with this issue over here. I've dealt with that issue over here, but it's the tongue. It's my tongue. I encourage you, bring that to the Lord. Because the Lord cares about these issues. We've seen how many times he's talk, spoken about it here in the book of Proverbs. He cares about it. So you ask the Lord for his help in this area. You submit this area to him. When you fail, you confess it as sin. And you ask him for his strength. There's wisdom, there's safety in doing so. And it's his exhortation to us, right? Amen. I'll say it that way, right? That it, was, it meant the same thing. All right, Solomon continues, verse 4. The soul of the sluggard, oh, here we go again. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. The soul of the sluggard. In early American history, when the colonists came, we, there were two waves of colonists that came. The first group uh, came down into the area of what is Virginia, North Carolina, in this particular um, area. We know about the pilgrims and stuff. They were about 1620. Down in the south, it was more like 1607, 1608, and so on. And when they came, there was this hope that this area, the Americas, was going to flow with gold. 
that there was treasure everywhere. All you had to do was a little looking for it. And so many of these colonists that came down into uh, the south, what we call the south today, they didn't want to do the hard work of planting. They didn't want to do the hard work of going out and hunting and all these things. All they wanted to do was spend their time digging for gold and treasure, and then they can go back and they can live as kings wherever they wanted to do. And so very few colonists got busy with cultivating the ground and growing food and all of that. Instead, they were daily on a treasure hunt. And recognizing that there was about to be a pending food shortage, because they brought a whole bunch of food with them that would get them to the point that the food they grew would be enough to start eating, recognizing that there was a pending food shortage, the the leader of this particular colony, a guy by the name of John Smith, he declared these words. He says, new rule, I've declared, he who does not work does not eat. Now, John Smith was a Christian. John Smith, no doubt, was familiar that uh, this wasn't a new phrase that he invented. He, he stole these words, if you will, from the Apostle John, or excuse me, the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, he wrote to the church in Thessaloniki, he said, if a man will not work, neither shall he eat. Essentially the exact same words. That was the principle. And so whether it is because the person has given themselves to some get-rich-quick scheme, as these guys did with treasure, I don't want to go work for it, I just want to go find it somewhere, or it's because they're lazy and they just won't get out of bed, the rule applies the same, that he who will not work will not eat. And the lazy man that is spoken of here in our verse has great desires. The, the verse uses the word cravings. Great desire. One day I want to have a house on the beach. One day I want to have you know, a fast car. One day I want to have a mansion, all these kinds of things. They have great desires. They have great cravings. But those desires will never be enough. Great. You have great desires. Get up and go do something to get it if that's indeed what you want. Again, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. As somebody has said, the wish without the exertion is useless. The wish without the exertion is useless. It's the soul of the diligent, as our verse tells us, that is richly supplied. They're the ones that know the satisfaction of a job well done, and as Paul says somewhere in the New Testament, the sweet rest of having worked hard for something. The sluggard desires the gains which the diligent get, but they're unwilling to take the pains that it requires to get it. And because they do, they will never acquire that which they are dreaming of. Now, I would say this. So that's just in a very practical sense. We've talked about being diligent a number of times. If that's an area you struggle and you find yourself more prone to being lazy and just having things kind of dropped off at your doorstep, well, then bring that to the Lord. Say, Lord, you've got to search this area out of my life. You've got to reveal it. You've got to convince me that this is a character matter that you care about, and then I'll give it over to you, and the Lord will do that. Now, I think these things also apply in our spiritual lives as well. So I'm talking about sort of our physical lives here initially, but I think they apply in our spiritual lives as well. It's the soul of the diligent that will be fed. And so the takeaway from this is dig into your Bible. Discover what it says. James, somebody talks about it in the New Testament. He says, by now you should be eating meat, but you're still still drinking milk. You're still a babe in Christ. Because after all these years, you should learn to be able to dig into the word for yourself and glean from it. And the writer, anyone know who said that? Anybody? It was Paul? It was Paul in Romans? Really? Okay, well, there you go. It's Paul in Romans. I believe I taught that book here. Uh, And he's been digging. You can tell. Uh, into his Bible. But Paul is saying there, after all these years, you haven't grown. 
you're still like a toddler or a baby drinking milk. You've got to dig. So dig into your Bible. If you need to, get yourself some study helps. Most of them are available for free online. You've got to be careful with some of the stuff you get online. But most of the very good study helps that are available are available online. There's no excuse. They're free. Start digging into that. Find a good teacher or good teachers that you enjoy. Listen to them. Process what they're saying. Wrestle with it to see if it lines up with Scripture. Set aside time to pray and learn how to pray. It's not just about having some time and sitting there. You've got to learn how to pray and battle through your flesh. My biggest struggle is I, I start to pray and then I start thinking, I do need to mow the lawn, don't I? You know, and then I'll just pray while I mow the lawn or whatever, and I get distracted, but you've got to learn how to pray. And so uh, this is not just for physical, dil- the benefit of physically being diligent, naturally being diligent, but spiritually. Spiritual growth will not just happen, okay? Spiritual growth will not just happen, regardless of how much you desire that it would. But you've got to begin to dig into these things. It's the one that is diligent about growing in spiritual things that grows in spiritual things. Amen? All right, verse 5. The righteous hates, I should say, falsehood, but the wicked brings shame and disgrace, the passage says there. The righteous hates falsehood because God hates falsehood. The righteous hates falsehood. If you're his follower, your life should be marked by the things he loves and the things he hates. The things he loves, you should love. The things he hates, you should hate. The righteous hate falsehood. Verse 6, righteousness guards him whose way is blameless, but sin overthrows the wicked. Now, generally speaking, a righteous life is a protected life. And and as we've been saying, this doesn't necessarily mean that the catastrophic will never happen to the follower uh, of Christ. But the typical order of things is that a righteous life is a protected life. The sinner, on the other hand, continually puts themselves in peril by their own wickedness. Because sooner or later, as the verse says here, that wickedness will catch up with them. That wickedness will overthrow them. But the way of the righteous is a safe path. And the wise are careful to stay on that path. Amen? Verse 7. One pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. Now, I think in a very practical, earthly sense, Solomon is saying essentially to us, don't judge a book by its cover. A man who has nothing in the way of material possessions may try to create the impression that he is quite wealthy, while the one who actually has great wealth may try to give off the appearance that they are poor. So nobody will bother them and ask for anything from them. And so they may try to give that particular impression. And so just in a very natural sense, don't judge a book by a cover. You never know what you're actually looking at there. I think spiritually, heavenly, in a heavenly sense, I think we could also look at this and say that Solomon is addressing the fact that a person may have everything they want in this world, great wealth, and yet actually be a spiritual pauper. They may have all that they want in this world, but spiritually actually be very, very poor. They may have amassed great wealth, and yet that wealth has no purchasing power as far as the things of eternity are concerned. And as I consider that, I'm reminded of the church in Laodicea. Remember in Revelation chapter 3, You have this church in Laodicea, and Jesus addresses them. And he addresses the fact that they had a great many uh, earthly goods, but that they were impoverished spiritually. These are the words, chapter 3 of that book. It says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, 
not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus' counsel to these people is, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be, and I'll add, truly rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may truly see. This group here, this church, this was a whole church of people. Because they had no earthly needs, they convinced themselves that they had no heavenly needs. And in doing that, they actually revealed their great spiritual bankruptcy. The fact that they thought they had no real heavenly needs, they revealed who they really were spiritually. And I think too often that story is repeated. Jesus regularly challenged people through the Gospels that were rich in this world's goods, but not in the next world's goods, so to speak. And in one instance, Jesus tells a parable to make his point. It's recorded for us in Luke chapter 12. And Luke 12, he says this, he, Jesus says, Jesus said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he, Jesus then told him a parable. He said, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And the man thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I have too many. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Now catch what Jesus says. In the next verse, God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself on earth, but is not rich toward God in heaven. Strong words. And, and I think these are important words, particularly for us in the United States. And the reason why I say that is because from top to bottom in the U.S. of A., um, we are the richest people that have ever lived on the earth. The average standard of living here in the United States, even the poorest here in the United States, is wealthier than many of the people that have ever lived uh, on the earth. Even the poorest in in our nation are more well-to-do than the vast majority of people that have lived on the earth. And I think the problem with that, I'm, I'm glad that we have that, certainly, but I think the problem with that is it's very easy for us to get comfortable in America. It's very easy for us to think we have need of nothing, to think that somehow the great amounts of this world's good goods somehow equates to great amounts of God's favor. The scripture doesn't teach that. And it's not necessarily the case. Regardless of the size of someone's bank account, if they are not right with God spiritually, that person is actually a person that is in great need. And Solomon's exhortation, the exhortation of scripture, is that all men everywhere need to be rich toward God. And by that, as we know, that only comes about when a person is right with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And so as uh, Paul's here, I'll just stop. Are you in right relationship with God? You may be in right relationship with those that are around you. People may look at your life and admire you and say, wow, you got it all together. Boy, you sure did live a good life. Look at your bank account and so on. But are you in right relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ? That's true riches is to be right with God spiritually. Amen, friends? Verse 8 says, the ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth. Many times we think money will solve all of our problems. Solomon shows us here that many times it's money that creates 
many of our problems. A rich man is often threatened by those who want his money. And so there are instances where a rich man will wonder, well, this guy's being friendly to me. A rich lady will wonder, this person is being friendly to me. What do they want from me? Do they know that I'm wealthy? Do they want me to give a, a gift to them? Do they want me to be my friend so I can ben- they can benefit off of me? Or you have instances where a rich man will go into the Caribbean or whatever, and he's got his Rolex, and, Rolex I should say, and his nice suit and all these things, and he gets kidnapped. And we see this all the time in um, Caribbean and, and other places. People get kidnapped for their money. And the poor guy's just strolling along. Nobody's bothering him because he or she doesn't have any money. And so many times the, uh, our wealth might actually create more problems then they would benefit. It says the ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man fears or hears no threat. I think a takeaway from this is, is just something like this. It's not necessarily a statement about money. It's a statement like this. The grass is not always greener. A lot of times we think, you know, if I only had all this money, everything would be great. Not necessarily. Get kidnapped next time you go on vacation, you know. The grass is not necessarily always greener. Many times something might appear to be rosier it may appear to be grander but it'll bring its challenges as well just a simple observation verse 9 the light of the righteous rejoices but the lamp of the wicked will be put out Solomon has continually been contrasting the wise and the foolish the righteous and the wicked and I think he does so here one more time by just simply drawing a contrast about the longevity of the two he he acknowledges yeah the wicked's lamp it may flare for a moment but it will ultimately be extinguished. The one that will shine, the one that will not be extinguished is the one that can, and will continue to shine brightly, that's the righteous one. He draws his contrast. And so that being said, if one's gonna burn out quickly and the other one will uh, stay lit you know, beyond and will continue to go on, that being said, which of those two should you desire to be? The righteous or the wicked? The wise or the fool? The one that burns for a moment? or the one that continues on in and uh, through eternity? I mean, I think the answer is obvious. I want to be the one that continues on in and through eternity. And so without saying it, that's Solomon's exhortation. Be the one that walks in righteousness. Be the wise individual. Verse 10, he continues, By insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. Now, insolence is rude and disrespectful behavior. Uh, The same word in some of your versions is translated as pride. A lot of our versions translate the word pride. And so we're talking about rude, disrespectful behavior that stems from my belief that I am better than you. That never ends well, does it? When two people come together and one believes they're more important than the other or better than the other or they should be heard or their way should be, etc., it never ends well. As it says here in our verse, it ends in nothing but strife. And James addresses this, again, in the New Testament. To look there to the New Testament, James addresses this by saying, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? I want my way. You want your way. And so we'll fight it out. Fist fight it out if, if that's what it needs. We'll argue it out if that's what it needs. I'll give you the cold shoulder until you realize, like, all right, I better say I'm sorry or there'll be no dinner tonight. Or, you know, something like this. You go through this whole process here and you war with one another. C.S. Lewis, he wrote this, pride always means enmity because it is enmity. Pride is enmity. As my passions and my desires war against your passions and your desires, the end result 
is strife. And may I remind you, it takes two to make a quarrel. And when the effort to maintain my way or my pride or my dignity, when I allow that to prevail, strife will not be far behind. But if, on the other hand, I refuse to give a response to an apparent affront, you know, you offend, I can't believe you said that. Don't you know who I am? I'm going to get even. If I refuse to give a response to an affront and instead I show grace, well, then the strife must cease. I think I've shared this before. My wife and I, we were like 25 or something. We, we sort of got into this ridiculous argument over whether it should be pumpkin pie or apple pie at Thanksgiving. Do you remember this? It was at my parents' house. We were in the living room. She's forgotten because she's sweet and wonderful. Already? Yeah. But we were having this argument. No, it's supposed to be pumpkin pie. And I was, I was again mad. And I was convinced it's supposed to be pumpkin pie. And I can't believe she doesn't see it. I don't know why I married this woman. If she can't see this, how could it possibly be? And we were going back and forth. And then all of a sudden it just hit me. This is stupid. You know? Both. The answer is both. You have apple pie and pumpkin pie. You see what I'm saying? You know what I mean? But just in an instance there, I realized just how dumb this was. And the, the fight was over. The argument was over. Just like that. And if one refuses to feed the fight, the fight goes away. Now, I think a good example of a person willing to lay down their pride is the one, as it says here, willing to take the advice of others. And so you see there, it says, by insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. And again, if you're willing to receive instruction from another, if you're willing to receive advice from another, that is a marker that you are wise. You're laying down your pride and you're willing to receive. How many people have this attitude, I'd rather be wrong than somebody else be right? That's ridiculous. And yet often our pride brings us to that place. I'd rather be wrong than for you to have the satisfaction that you are right. Well, who are you really hurting? You're hurting yourself. Those who are willing to listen to good advice are wise. They avoid pride and the personality conflicts that go with pride. And, and I believe the Lord would have each of us to be that sort of people. Amen? That's not that profound. This is not some like, wow, that's a great spiritual truth. It's just true, isn't it? So much of what we're learning is just true. And it resonates as truth within our hearts. And like the tongue, it just, all right, Lord, bring me to that place that I may walk in that truth. Verse 11, wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Wealth that is gained hastily comes without any exertion. You win the lottery. What did you have to do? You had to go in and buy a ticket for a dollar. All right, no exertion involved in that particular process. And such wealth rarely last very long. I found this interesting study. There was a woman, her name was Teresa Dixon Murray. She was a journalist for the Cleveland Plan, Plain Dealer. And she wrote an article, the title of which caught my attention. It says this, why do 70% of lottery winners end up bankrupt? Bankrupt, I should say. Why do 70% of lottery winners end up bankrupt? Think about that for a second. That means that 70% of lottery winners are actually worse off after having won the lottery than beforehand. That's remarkable to me. And I think the answer is because wealth gained hastily will dwindle. But whoever gains little by little will increase it. That which comes easily, easily slips away. 
But wealth that is acquired by hard work and repeated years of later, labor is wealth that is truly valued. Now, the purchase of that particular expensive item is weighed much more carefully because now you realize I had to work 78 hours to buy this particular thing. I don't need it anymore. It's not worth it to me anymore that when I put it in that particular light. Wealth that is acquired by hard work and repeated years of labor is wealth that is truly valuable. It's one of the reasons why I think it's so important that our kids are doing work in one way or another to earn some money. My son Luke, I'm going to tell you a little story about little Luke. How old were you, like five? You know, you just made up a number. Look at him. But Luke wanted a transformer. This transformer was like $12 or something like that. And so I said, oh, Mom, I want it. It was at the shop, right? I want that particular transformer there. And so we decided, all right, you can have that. You'll have to buy it for yourself, but we'll, we'll give you ways that you could earn the money. And so he had to go out and pick up pine cones, little Luke. And we had a lot of pine cones in our front yard. We gave him a nickel per pine cone. And the poor kid, he's out there picking up pine cones, and he earned like $11.50, and then we gave him the remaining 50 cents for the particular thing. But you learn the value of something when you work hard for something. And so I'd encourage you, appreciate your wealth. Work hard for it. All right? As the verse says there, wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Uh, if you, he's going to have some time off, by the way. If you have pine cones <laughs> at your house. Hey, yeah, yes, that's right. All right, let's go on to verse 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. This is a familiar verse. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. I think one of the hardest things to do is to wait, isn't it? In our culture especially. Have you gotten frustrated at your microwave? I can't believe it. One minute to heat up my pizza. You know, this is ridiculous. All right, but the hard, one of the hardest things to do is, is wait. And when our longings, now notice, when our longings are repeatedly postponed, it's one thing, all right, I'll wait, you know, five minutes here, or I'll wait until this. But then something happens and our longings are repeatedly postponed. Such deferral can be disheartening, as the verse said. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But notice, though, the verse goes on. When that hope is realized, notice it says that life is birthed in the soul. That the fulfillment of all those years, maybe, of longing are met, and they become the source of great satisfaction in our hearts. And so I think this verse, may it be an encouragement to any of us that are longing for a God-given desire to continue patiently enduring. Because here's the order of how things work. God makes a promise in one way or another, and in faith we now believe that promise, and then in hope we anticipate it, and then we patiently wait for it. And then finally, it's birth, if you will, it's fulfilled, the desire is fulfilled, and we receive it with great joy. And that's sort of the process of things. And halfway through that, we want to just give up. And we say, you know what? No, I'm going to get ahead of God. I'm going to manufacture this. I'm going to make it happen. And it's always a mistake when we do so. And so hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Keep trusting in the Lord. Keep patiently enduring. Keep waiting. And if indeed that was from the Lord, it'll come in its timing. Amen, friends? Verse 13, whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself, but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. I read a commentator who said, whoever despises the word pushes the self-destruct button. Now, to despise the word, it means to give the word no regard. 
It means to give no place in your, the word, no place in your life. That's what it means to despise the word. Or if you do give it a place, it means to allow it to have no impact. Well, I give it a place in my word. I come to, in my life, I come to church every Sunday. I sit there for like an hour, listen to that guy. I, I give it a place in my life. I give it regard. But if you hear the word, and then you go out and say, you know, that reminds me of what that guy said. Eh, I'm going to do my own thing. Well, then you don't really give it a place in your heart. And you don't really give it word, uh, regard. You despise the word in those particular instances. How many people will know what the Bible says, but essentially say, maybe they say it out loud, maybe they don't, but essentially say, well, what does the Bible really know about 21st century issues or problems? They give it no regard. Now, I don't think that this is a threat from God. Again, read it, you, if you read it that way, whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself. You're just waiting for God to throw down lightning bolts. That would be a threat from God. I don't think this is really a threat. I think it's a straightforward, matter-of-fact observation by Solomon that the person that despises the word of God is going to bring destruction upon themselves. It's just a straightforward Uh, matter-of-fact statement. That's just the way it works. You ignore these things, you do so to your own peril, is what Solomon is saying here. And as I was thinking about this, I began kind of just in my mind making my way through the scriptures. And it, it struck me that in the book of Genesis, you may recall, there's a few examples, but Noah preached for 100 years to people that God's judgment was coming. But it says that the people ignored his preaching and even mocked his preaching. And what happened to them? Judgment came upon those people. Word, they despised the word of God. They experienced God's judgment. In the book of Exodus, Moses repeatedly warns Pharaoh. But Pharaoh continues to reject until the last plague, there was great mourning in Egypt. In the book of Leviticus, Nadab and Abihu despise God's word, do their own thing, bring strange fire as part of their worship, and they were struck dead for doing so. Korah rebels in the book of Numbers, rebels against God and his instructions, and literally is swallowed up by the earth in some form of an earthquake type of thing. Even Moses faces the consequences in the book of Deuteronomy for earlier having despised the word of God and misrepresenting God as if he was angry. God wasn't angry. Moses was the one angry. And again and again, would you like, let's go through the whole Bible? You got time? No, again and again, you see this example of the word of God is put forth. People ignore it. People despise it. People are going to do their own thing, and they face the consequences for doing so. And so we would be wise. Let's learn the example of those that have gone before us rather than, well, let me see if that is indeed true. God's ways are higher than our ways, and we would do well to take heed to them. Right, friends? Verse 14, the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Again, these words are for our good. Every word of wisdom that Solomon is seeking to communicate and every word of wisdom that the rest of the scriptures uh, speaks to our hearts is for our good. That's why it's there. It's for our good. The Lord sees uh, and seeks, I should say, to guard you and I from the mistakes that walking outside of his will are are naturally going to bring against us, the pitfalls that we might fall into from walking in foolishness. His desire is to protect us from all of those things. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life. 
It's for our good that one may turn away from the snares of death. Verse 15, good sense wins favor, but the way of the treacherous is their ruin. And again, I think the whole reason this book is written is that Solomon's son and you and I would avoid the pain and difficulties that a life of sin will bring. That Solomon's goal, his desire, God's desire even, is to keep us from going down that path. The, way, the path of wisdom is the favorable path. The path of foolishness is the path of ruin. And he would have us be protected from that. Verse 16, he continues, Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool flaunts his folly. There is great wisdom in caution. Great wisdom in caution. They say that young men, that there's a portion of their brain that doesn't develop that develops earlier in young girls and is found typically in adults and women. And so it's why adults don't jump off buildings. You know, let's jump off, do a flip, see what happens kind of thing. When they're, and it's why teenage girls don't do it either because they're smarter. Alrighty? But teenage boys, I was one of them, were like, sure, let's give it a shot. Let's see what happens if I jump off this building and try to do a flip or whatever. Caution. There's wisdom in caution. It's when a person is prudent, when they're thoughtful, when they're careful, when they're wise, that comes out in the responsible way that they live their lives. A fool, on the other hand, demonstrates their foolishness so that everyone can see. And so they just jump on into things. If, if it's wise to be cautious, then conversely, it must be foolish to be rash. And so now let's, let's bring it to ourselves. Don't jump off buildings. There's your word of application. But let's bring it back to ourselves here. The next time you're getting ready to just say something, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to say it. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to buy it. I'm going to do it or whatever. The next time you're in that particular instance, remind yourself that there is wisdom in caution, okay? Verse 17, a wicked messenger falls into trouble, but a faithful envoy brings healing. So if you're entrusted with the responsibility, be, ca- uh, be faithful to complete that job properly. If in the instance here about being a messenger, if you're sent forth with a message, well, be careful. Be faithful to convey that message properly. Earlier, I mentioned Moses. And Moses, as many of you know, was excluded from entering the promised land. For 40 years, he led the people out of slavery, wandering in the wilderness, heading to the promised land. He actually got to the point where he stood on this high mountain and could see the promised land, probably naturally, because you can see everything from up there, but maybe to some degree spiritually as well. He got that close to it, but he was not allowed to enter in. And the reason why he was not allowed to enter in is because earlier he had communicated God's message improperly. Now, if you go back and you look at it, it's somewhere in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 20. He communicated the right words, but he did not communicate the heart of God in that particular instance there. And instead, he betrayed God as if God was angry with the Jewish people. And God wasn't mad at the Jewish people. As I said earlier, Moses was mad at the Jewish people. And he was not a faithful messenger of God's word in that instance. And because of that, he experienced the consequences of that. I think that's important words for you and I. I think sometimes as Christians, we communicate the gospel perfectly properly. I don't know if that's correct English. But, but we do it, it, we pass the test. Theologically, everything is correct. Do we communicate it with the heart of God as well? Somebody I, I read or told me recently, Charles Spurgeon, he said, 
Never tell a person they're going to hell without a tear in your eye. And I think there's such great truth in that. Because I should communicate the gospel to you and my heart is broken for your condition. That outside of Christ, you are separated from God now and you will be separated God from God for all eternity. And yet sometimes as Christians, we want to bang the pulpit. We want to put our finger in people's faces and tell them they're going to hell. You should never tell a person they're going to hell unless there's a tear in your eye that your heart is broken for that individual. Faithful to the message, as it says here, a wicked messenger falls in trouble, but a faithful envoy brings healing. I think those are important words for us as we remind ourselves of God's plan for reaching the world. What's God's plan for reaching the world? Us. Who said that? That was you? You get a star. You guys want to fight it out? (laughs) Ready? You both get a star. We are God's plan for reaching the world, which means if we're messing up at it, that's not good. Let's communicate the message of the gospel with the heart of the gospel. Love. Amen? We're going to... Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.